a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, where we try to not rate what we watch this week. We're back for season two, after season one ended with TJ, not that movie I don't want to talk about, winning by being on the board as being a guest on our show, and walking away with less points than anybody else, because, you know, he gave as few subjective opinions as possible trying to be objective thinking talking about the movies and that's what we want to do here so season two we have retooled the rules um everyone is a winner here now starting with season two except me i was the loser last season so the person with the most points is a loser you earn points by being on the show and walking away with as few points as possible this season you can really only earn points by not using your brain you can also earn points in the official TFNR, well, this film not rated, Gauntlet, which we have created for this season, but more on that later. The point is, if I give a subjective opinion, like Keanu Reeves is hilariously bad in Dracula, I'll be given a chance to justify it with as much objective detail as possible, and only if I refuse to justify it will I earn a dreaded uh, point. Now, that's not how I feel about Keanu Reeves in Dracula. Okay. In fact, I I just think there's 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 more to it and it's complicated. But that that's me. I tend to not think of things in terms of just whether it's good or bad. I tend to want people to think more about that. We will have a gauntlet. We will talk more about what that is. But on this show, we talk about what we watched last week with no concern for spoilers. So remember that as we turn to the ultimate question, Curtis. What did you watch this week? Uh, Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings, Malignant, Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and uh, A Man Escaped. Awesome. And I am trying to pick which ones I watched, because I watched, like, every Halloween movie while I was doing, like, other notes for work, starting with the fourth one through up to, but not including the 2018 remake. Um, And really, this is just because, for me, around this time, it's like begging summer to turn into fall. Okay. And, um, I, I, I watched Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings with you, yep. Malignant, Dracula, 1990s, yep. and th- so these are the ones that we're gonna be talking about, but I also really want to talk about Rob Zombie's second Halloween movie. I never saw that one, so I'm actually kind of curious. I, I I remember liking his first one, but my, again, like, n- never had a chance to see the second one. I can safely say, because mm-hmm. of our new rules... I can't stand the first one. I haven't seen the first one in years, so my opinion may have changed, but I just that's what I remember. Well, let me jump into it. So, when Halloween was asked to was when Rob Zombie was asked to remake Halloween, I I know he wanted to do something different and unique with it. And he did and then afterwards, in a way, people kind of explain that it's in a way that was very unappealing to them about the concept of the character. The idea is, you give him a crappy home life, you explain why Michael Myers is evil, and then you repeat the events of the first movie. And they put a different spin on Dr. Loomis as someone who is trying to, I think, cope with struggles and failures in his career by... Like, capitalizing on it. Like, writing about it, putting it out, and selling books, and trying to... And, like, everyone's constantly, you know... Kind of like he's out for blood money. Like, he's trying to profit off of horrors that have happened to people. Okay. 
And uh, the obviously the the thing is filled with actors who are recognizable from other horror thing, uh, like horror properties, uh, like um, Ken Forey, um, and what is the guy's name? Warm Tongue from The Exorcist Three. Oh, oh, uh, Chucky, the voice of Chucky. Yeah. Oh God. I, if I if I weren't trying to think about it, I would know his name. I know that much. Brad Dwarf, sorry. Brad Dourif is the guy. Anywho, you know how in the original Halloween, one of the daughter's father is a police sheriff? Yeah. He plays the police sheriff. And his daughter is played by the same actress who played Laurie Strode's niece in Halloween 4 and 5. She right. dies in the original and survives through this one. And, and that ends up being important, I think. So, objectively speaking... The movie is about a child who has a stepfather he doesn't like, a sister he doesn't like, is being bullied at school, and his mom like has no time for him, and he's just surrounded by anger and shouting his entire life. The, the, so the kid starts to get violent, and he's in the, a bad home, and people don't pay attention to him, so he continues to get violent, and then he kills everyone on Halloween, like the opening of the first one. And the thing that everybody calls out is, well, the scary thing about the original first one is that a child can be evil for no reason, and that that evil can be unexplained by human nature, and so explaining it by human nature flies in the face of the point of Michael Myers. Right. I think my my take on what is going on with Halloween Rob Zombies 1 and 2 is that's where people start to realize they were onto something and then miss the point. I I think what you have is a legend, mm-hmm. the original Halloween, and you have a an explanation that would feel like an unpleasant reality around it. Now, don't get me wrong. There are all kinds of other objective details I don't like about the first one. It's an incomplete story. If what I'm about to go into is the point, the first one is just ugly. Visually, everything is like decayed. You have to watch a couple of actors, at least in the unrated version, act out raping a girl in a mental health yeah. hospital. And I'm like, yeah. that's what I want when I'm entertaining myself. Thank yeah. you, Rob Zombie. But it goes a little step too far. And the, the, the thing that bothers me is he directs his actors to act distraught in a way that doesn't feel real to me. Rob Zombie directs them to react the way it would if you were just dumping cortisol into your body, which is the hormone we have that basically is like the traumatic feeling of dread. Like, I I don't know how to explain it exactly. And uh, panic. All the symptoms of panic with no adrenaline. And I think Rob Zombie thinks that this is reality, that it would be harsher and, and, and more tragic. But unfortunately, it is real that adrenaline is a thing that people calm down and they don't scream, slip, fall, and become unable to help themselves. We all know the story of a woman being able to lift a car off of her children because they're in danger. Yeah. Okay? There is never an instance in either of these Rob Zombie movies that a character has the ability to actually, like... There's there's a moment of panic mm-hmm. where dreaded panic makes Lori stop convulsing over a wall and gradually wiggles off and rips off pieces of wood that's blocking a door one by one. But she's screaming and crying the entire time. Like she's never she's constantly in the mode you would be in 
after you're scared being like processing something that's over. And and so you're watching characters be unrealistically unable to respond to fear. In a movie that is on the one end trying to be like the grim reality that would have to create Michael Myers is on the other end and everyone else who's not on board with this grim reality sucks and is incapable of protecting themselves and is weak. I don't want to watch this when I'm thinking of the first one. But when you watch the second one, mm-hmm. there's a there's a something that happens, a specific sequence, and it's about the actress who is in Halloween 4 and 5. The actress from Halloween 4 and 5 has grown up. She's been in both of these movies. She's been attacked by Michael Myers in the first one and has been healing with Laurie Strode, allowing her to stay at her and Brad Dourif's house, uh, you know, to try and lead a life after something horrible like that happens. And talk about somebody trying to process a traumatic event in their event in their life the way that they handled things in 2018 with Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. But you have those characters really trying to their best to take care of one another and do all this. But when that character dies, mm-hmm. the one who's played by the actress from Halloween 4 and 5. Yeah. It's completely different from any other death in a Rob Zombie movie. She starts to scream because... After being horrifically traumatized by Michael Myers one time, he returns to her home. And she starts to scream, and she starts to run away from him, and it's in slow motion. And he doesn't usually do it. He usually does brute force punching and all this kind of stuff, and really loud aggressive noises and stabbing and ugly, like, real black-red blood spurts and all this kind of stuff. But you start hearing the noises, and it starts fading away. You don't ever actually see what happens to her. You just see Brad Dourif pull up. No, you actually see Lori and her friend pull up. This death, that way that sequence is handled is very, oh my gosh, what happened? And then you see what happened as she's in a bathroom and it's horrific and bloody and all this kind of stuff. But after what happened in the first movie, the way they handle some of the sensitivity of it's tragic that something so horrible happened to someone, Mm -hmm. you have the father's reaction. And he's hurt. And Brad Dourif is an actor who can really convey a lot of complicated emotions like we've seen from the exorcist three yeah and then they intersplice home video footage from the actress of herself as a child like actual home video like like not of the character but of her of the actress and from this point where you're 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 starting to look at it and you're holding on it and thinking about the actress from the original movie and the character and the tragedy on the dad's face. And there's something more gripping and real about the fact that a human being just died. Hmm. And then you get to where Laurie has been dragged by Michael for the climax of the movie. And you have uh, the sequence. And, and I think something that's very important is in the middle of this sequence... Uh, Dr. Loomis is uh, killed, uh, and or you think Dr. Loomis has been killed, but he hasn't yet. Right. And Lori is coming out because Michael Myers has been shot down. Lori d- has discovered over the course of this movie that people have lied to her, and she finds out, much as she did in the first Halloween 2, that she is the sister of Michael Myers. Okay. When she realizes how much profit Dr. Loomis has made... And how the reveal in this movie is based on him releasing a book to get more profit off of it. And just casually it mentions that she's Michael Myers' sister and that's how she finds out. She's so angry with him 
She walks up with a gun and she's going to shoot him in the head. Oh. And so the police officers, mm-hmm. Brad Dourif among them, shoot Lori down. And I just started to piece a couple of things together. That there's a population of people and how Rob Zombie thinks of them in the real world. That created a legend of Michael Myers that they all kind of think is really cool and is something they continue to profit off of. Mm-hmm. And the creator, supposedly Sam Loomis, is someone who continues to profit off of Michael Myers. Until someone comes along and wants to stop them, but the system that's built around it won't let someone change or stop it from being what it is. So I think if you think of Lori as Rob Zombie... Mm-hmm. Someone who grew up watching Halloween and is affected and influenced by it and it's a part of his world. Yeah. And you think of Dr. Loomis as the studio system around John Carpenter that continues to profit off of Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. You have this relationship where he wanted to make a first movie, his own thing, ended up making like a carbon copy remake for the second half of it, goes on to try and make a movie that details how... We keep treating slashers and horror movies as something with, like, little consequence and for entertainment. Mm -hmm. So what if you watch a movie that has a little more grit and meaning to it about the tragedy of what this stuff is? And then Laurie Strode slash Rob Zombie is not allowed. And the moment she tries to kill this system that let Michael Myers become what it is, she's shot down by the rest of the world that has been shaped by that studio system to become fans of Michael Myers. Okay. So I just think on some level, whether it, you know, it's like a, a wild theory. The point is, you're you're living in all of this camp and you're like, why isn't this right? And then you realize that is real. That is what it's like when a person dies horrifically or is traumatized and re-traumatized, re-victimized by other people. And this is like the whole, and you kind of get to see how systemically Laurie is trapped and doomed into something that's going to... Screw her over. And if that didn't exist in the real world, it would be less horrific, I think. Okay. Like, if Laurie Strode being, you know, shot down by the police for trying to shoot Dr. Loomis wasn't... Yeah, if, if it wasn't originally grounded, if it was just the same opening as the original Halloween, mm-hmm. then it wouldn't be gritted in this world, and it would have different implications. It wouldn't mean the same okay. thing. So... That's just the thing I wanted to get out there is like there's this this sort of compelling reflection on slasher movies in Halloween too, and although I'm not a hundred percent sure that I would even watch it again, now that I have it in my brain, mm-hmm. okay, except for you know just a couple of connections, anyways. <laughs> Recently watched uh, Man Escaped. Big motivation for me wanting to watch this movie is uh, we've we've been watching uh, Safety Brother movies for a while, and this is one of their. I watched one. Good time. Oh, you haven't seen Uncut Gems yet? Okay, no. I've seen multiple Safety Brother them. movies. They were part of the two people who were a special feature for Martin Scorsese's shorts from Criterion Collection. but Right. But um, I first heard of this movie through uh, a Criterion thing for them where they like picked that out of, uh, of the Criterion closet. And like they said, the, the title of the movie, uh, Man Escaped, is a spoiler for the, inevitable, for the inevitable end of the movie. So my entire thought process going into this was, how do they make a movie in- entertaining when the title is a spoiler for it, essentially? 
And I quickly came to realize it, it's it made me think a lot of cats. And now I haven't seen that's oh, right, cat people. Cat people. Sorry, not cats, cat people. Made me think a lot of cat people. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie yet, just based on, on your description. This is atmosphere. Like, it, it's very a- a- atmospheric, it's very quiet. And it relies heavily on... Makes, s- makes you think about what's not on screen. Yeah. that And again, also also like like uh, Cat People relies heavily on sound. Hmm. Like and multiple examples that I can think of, like, would be when a guy, the, the main character is being transferred from one cell to another. The, the, the filmmaker makes it a point to, to show you that the, that the guard that's transferring them is running their keys along the... Uh, a, 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 along the bars going up as a kind of hobby, so it's it's already queuing you in in on on audio to pay a, to pay attention for later. Mm. And because the uh, the, uh, the 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 atmosphere is so silent, it makes everything every sound feel that much louder, which helps to create that feeling of suspense that normally uh, you wouldn't get with say a traditional score. So like there's this one and I one moment where he's uh, prying wood off 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 a door because it's the last thing he needs to do before he's able to leave the door willingly mm. the the room willingly. I don't think I've ever cringed so hard at the sound of wood breaking. Oh, to the point where I caught myself thinking, "Holy shit! Someone must have heard that." Mm. And you're and you know the guy's thinking the same thing because he's like backed away. He's still. He's quiet and he's listening. Mm. And you don't really see any violence on the screen either. That, that's all depicted through sound. Like, you hear gunshots, you see someone running. Once once they're off screen, bang, 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 gunshots. A uh, very impactful moment is uh, you, you hear the ex- execution of someone that's a friend of the prisoner. And you you don't have to see him die. You just hear the, 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 the machine guns fire and you know he's gone. Mm. That's the ultimate thing is... Through through simplicity and a lack of in, environment, because the entire thing takes place within the actual prison. There are a few moments where he's outside the cell, but the majority of the time he's in a cell. Mm. So they use these simple tricks to build suspense and, and like build a, I, I guess, repose mm. with the character itself. So uh, I want to talk about Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings. Because I don't have a lot to say about it, and that's kind of what I have to say about it. Okay. Um, so there, there is uh, an article online people can find, which is Shang-Chi from the perspective of a Chinese-American who points out that the movie is a little different from something like Black Panther, where it's not necessarily representing specifically Asian culture. It's more re- representing specifically Asian Chinese-American culture. Like the, the generation of people who would move, like not not your not your uh, T'Challa character, but your your Killmonger character, who has lived and grown up in the U.S. and and what they do when they find out about their culture and heritage and how they try and struggle to live with it. And there was a lot of depth, I think, in the performances and in the the. St- story details that they were trying to convey but the script lays things out in just a a bizarre structure that is just you know just it's a three-act structure but it seems to be built around action set pieces and laughing beats 
The things that are going to excite an audience. It's like, it's been a couple of minutes, and so a beat happens. It's been a couple more minutes, so a different kind of beat happens. It felt it felt very produced and targeted. Uh, there was a little bit in the beginning of Shang-Chi trying to be like, oh, this humble apartment I live in, where they built an apartment that has some posters on it. You know, like, you never even really see it. He wakes up, he puts his headphones in or whatever. Like, the, the Shang-Chi, like, superhero outfit... Yeah. Love the story idea behind it. Love that his mom created this to protect him, and that's what she was worried about. Love the mythology, the idea of dragon scales versus this other idea, and whether or not that has magic to do with that. I just like the ideas behind it. But the result is a guy in a red shirt and black slacks. Yeah. And it it's not that it looks bad, but there's something... About, I'll just stick to Shang-Chi, the character on his own, Mm -hmm. that is just not memorable or grounded in reality the way a lot of other characters have been. Like, he's overly simplistic to to an extent? Not simplistic enough, in a weird way. And Shang-Chi feels more like they tried to make him Joe Blow, like your average guy, Mm -hmm. but he's not, and the story tells you that he's important. But he doesn't play the character of someone who was raised to be a killer and is trying to suppress it. Right. Which would be a unique character for Marvel, but he doesn't play it that way. Now, I'm not saying the way that he plays it is not appealing to me. The actor is is charming and pulls off so much of the stunt work and Hmm. manages to carry the emotional weight of most of the scenes in a vacuum. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I have to talk about how I'm going to kill my father. So he's able to play that emotion in that scene. Right. But I don't then feel, when he's preparing for battle and putting on armor that his mom gave him, that he's upset at all about the idea that the reason he's wearing this armor is because he's going to kill his father. Um, I, I care so much more about Tony Leung, the king of kings. Yeah. And, you know, Wen Wu's relationship with Shang-Chi... Then I care about anything going on in that whole ending. The dragons and all this kind of stuff that I could and should feel invested in feels like it's getting in the way of what I want to watch or feel. Um, the thing that like interests me the most about it is that there is this uh, theme of, of yin and yang. There is no light without dark. There is no dark without light. And that is uh, all per- personified, or at least it should be in Shang chis character because you have... Mm-hmm. The, the Mandarin Win Win uh Win Wu being the the dark character with a bit of good in him, and his mother, which is the light character, but she also left behind her responsibility. So you could see that as like being a little bit of dark. And well, yeah, there's a certain kind of see. That's the the beautiful. I'm, I'm not gonna go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> so, so like it that kills me. It's like you literally built a romance around the idea of of good that stood in the way of evil brought out a balance between each other and went to go have children. Right. And, like, that is... and, and Didn't happen. No. We didn't like, see them romantically together. Unfortunately, we just saw we how they fell in love and then they were in love off right. screen. And then they were... We saw a family night. Like... Right, I, no. But uh, Shang, Shang, Shang-Chi's character is supposed to... Like, the way that I see it, he's, like, de- dealing with these polar um, opposites of, of being a part of him. And his whole arc is coming to terms with that he is both and that Neither one is 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 whole good and whole bad, and mm-hmm. like that's supposed to be his arc. I don't know if they actually succeeded in, in in like fleshing that that out, but that's what I think they were trying to do. I I just I just I don't know between him 
And Captain Marvel, who, you know, like, I have a whole different problem with. Shang-Chi, I kind of feel like they laid the groundwork for an arc where he's, like, trying to be peaceful. Again, like, with the bus, they directly reference Police Story, a Jackie Chan movie. Mm -hmm. Then you could have him be like, I don't want to bring out the fact that I'm a legitimate killer. Because that's not the way I want to be, and I'm trying to leave that behind. And his struggle with that. Yeah. Because every other Marvel superhero is gifted with gifts that they have to be responsible for. But... None of the ones in the MCU so far have had to deal with the idea that they have already used this for dark reasons and could be swayed and manipulated in a way that yeah. would make them wrong. Like, just, just, I, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it just feels like there's a coulda, yeah. a whole lot of coulda in this I, movie. Yeah, I get that. And Even though it was the big, by the way, going back to sit in a theater... <laughs> But like I, I do want to talk about Tony Lee, Lee um, Leung some more because I, I I'm, I'm sorry I, I really liked his performance as Absolutely. as a Win Wu. In fact, like when 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 I first saw this movie, he was my main motivating factor. He was the guy that, in a weird way, even though I knew he he was doing something he shouldn't, I was rooting for. Yeah. I, I had a clear understanding of what his motivations were. This movie could have simply been a, a dysfunctional father trying to rebuild a relationship with his siblings that have like shunned sh- that 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 have shunned him and. I would have still loved it, but it has to be Marvel. It has to be over the top. I I I, I love blockbuster movies. Yeah, and I'm so glad I don't have to buzz that. I I don't even care. My thing is that this movie is is over two hours long. Yes, and you have a good thirty minutes of just this is the building that so and so owns. Like they managed to use to go to the building to do that visually. They come in and they go, "Hey, look at this place," and you learn with Shang Chi as he sees what this is. It's a fight ring and all this kind of stuff. That's what he sees his sister. Mm-hmm. I'm completely on board with that. Yeah. <sighs> My father was the leader of the Ten Rings, and this is how he did a thing. And and even then, when it starts to get interesting, you get interrupted by someone asking yeah. for beef. You have to ride on the flight with them. You have to walk with Michelle Yeoh, who also did really good in the little the bit that they let her do in this movie. Um, as she's walking around telling them, our ancient civilizations were so great. And she's just parroting Ego and anyone who would talk about... Black Panther managed to not have that scene. You know, like, it's the same boring walking down a hallway. A camera looks at one person. A camera looks at the other person. They show a thing. They did it in Man of Steel by showing Kryptonite to the dude. They've done it in, like, every Marvel movie. Any, anywhere that has, like, an ancient civilization. Like, I want to roll my eyes... And um, the, all of this stuff that they're doing that they could just show visually, mm-hmm. like, what is this society? What do you do? Yeah. So, so too much exposition and not enough showing, I guess. And on top of it, you could fix a lot of other issues because people wouldn't have time to think about, wait, why did this just happen? What's going to happen next? Why are we not with this character? Why are we not with that character? Because they're walking around talking about things in between things. Like... The movie would have felt like an action pack romped if the four action set pieces that they had, mm-hmm. which were all very well designed, shot, edited, put together, were actually like strung together a little more cleanly. Okay. Uh, I mean, like you have you have the bus, mm-hmm. you have the fight in the building, yeah, and then you have the uh, escape with the car in order to go through the maze. Yes, and the end. Yeah, and if you just trim some of the things in between that down to what you need to know. Like I would so much rather have a scene between um, Tony Leung and uh, Wenwu's daughter 
Then have the whole scene where he's like, these two amulets I got from your mother. You don't understand. They show me a maze of water that tells me where I'm supposed to go. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you could take the maze completely, completely out of the movie. Because you opened the movie by him learning how to get there when they, he met the mother. Yeah. The end. His kids know how to get there because that's their mother. He knows how to get there. Take it all out of the movie. <laughs> Well, then how are we going to get him to go after the... the, the, the... I, I don't... I don't... Ha- okay? Get... Cr- write something. <laughs> okay? Have it be that um, the daughter mm-hmm. stayed. Mm. She's been secretly trying to build up herself as a fighter in secret in other places. But she doesn't actually own that building. And then that's a twist at the end is she's finally broken free of her father. So she owns the buildings. So she ends up in the same spot. But have it be that she fights in secret at night, but she lives with him in the Ten Rings. And when she finds out that he's going crazy, she goes for Shang-Chi. She sends people from the Ten Rings for Shang-Chi. I'm not saying there has to be more than like multi-million dollars or whatever. But I'm literally explaining with Shang-Chi, you could have done less if you just thought. Like, I, Yeah. No. So, not every Marvel yeah. movie has to be over two hours long, essentially. I, I, I guess, but at this... Yeah. 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 This is malignant is for people who like horror movies. You're not going to enjoy yourself if you go to this because you want to go out for a weekend. I don't think. No, I don't think so either. And I know that's super subjective. So I'm going to back this up. I want to back this up. Malignant is by James Wan. James Wan made Saw, Insidious, um, The Conjuring, The Conjuring Two, mm-hmm. Fast and the Furious Seven, Seven or Eight, one of those two. And Aquaman. Yeah. Okay? He also made a movie called Dead Silence, which no one ever talks about, that came out just after Saw. Him and Lee Winnell. And it's about a puppet. And it tanked horribly. Oh, God. Okay? And and so if you take the aesthetic of, like, all of these movies, Aquaman for the action set pieces, mm. um, the, the look of Insidious and the lighting cues for when something supernatural is happening with flashes of red and like muted color tones. Yeah. The involvement of the police and the procedural elements from saw and the praying, haunting, persistent creature in the weird dated, like that movie takes place in the seventies or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conjuring. And this one takes place. I have no idea when, cause they have modern cell phones, but use old radios to talk. And a dude had a landline at one point and I don't know where the clothes were all from. Like they live in a house that looks like it was built like a half a set, you know, half a century ago. Yeah, it pulls from like every horror movie that's come out in the last twenty years. Oh yeah, for sure, or more. Like there's a shot where someone thinks that something involved with her abusive husband is coming towards her, so she presses up against the door and holds it. And there's a shot that looks like The Shining. Mm-hmm. That's about as far back as it gets. All the way to very recently, the camera goes up. Above, like, the house has a maze to watch her run around, like in Don't Breathe, the first one from a couple of years ago. Okay, there's um, a sort of uh, gothic architecture to the police station that makes me think of older yeah. movies like uh, Seven right. and the hideout in, Jeepers in, Creepers. The hideout in the attic made, made, made me think of, like, the Friday the 13th remake, like Jason's Workshop. The character talking through creepy voice calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, the character literally being in the attic. 
of a place, Black uh, Christmas. having a body strapped to the wall that was having to wait for a while, mm-hmm. are all bit for bit for bit pulled directly out of Black Christmas. Yeah. But their take on the whole of it's coming from inside the house thing is one uh, of the best. Like, yeah, I love that. Yes. This movie is like, I like horror movies. You like horror movies. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, the big building, the house on Haunted Hill. Yes. Okay. Oh, God, yeah. That the thing originally starts in with the experiments going on, the creature and whatnot. Like, there's so many, so many very not subtle references compiling a bunch of other movies together. And you think the idea is that they're going to do something new with it, but no, it's, it seems literally just to enjoy horror. Yeah. Uh, like all, all that being said, like I have, you know, like some some things that I do want to say uh, from for 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 me, and I think you agreed when when we talked about this the other day. The movie for me felt like really tonally confused, like almost intentionally so, where there are shots that are shown back to back that don't mesh, and it kind of like jerks you out. So you have an you have an action scene going on, and then all of a sudden it shifts to like this really dark lighting, this horror lighting, and it's very like atmospheric and spooky. And then it'll jump to something else. So, like, like the whole videos where, where you're seeing the main character as a girl, and she's... That's a very paranormal activity, in a sense, where she's she's talking on a phone, she hangs up, and I, I just don't know how... Yeah. I, I just don't know how... Like, I, the third paranormal activity with the girls, where they talk to them, like, you know, like... Yeah. Yeah, someone's not in the room, the imaginary friend kind yeah. of position. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how, how, how I feel about the tonal jumps at this point. But, like, that's, that is a thing to note. And then there are all, all the dialogue that I can't tell if it's intentional or just badly delivered or both. I, it's, it's James Wan and it, it's an intentional, like, play on, on, like, horror dialogue, you could say. Yeah, so so to speak to that, like, I, I, I would also say bad dialogue. But the reason I would say bad dialogue is because there are statements that are said that are just at this point just seemed really aimed at telling the audience like what it's supposed to be like the main climax of the movie could have been completely wordless yeah but instead of a, a character saying like i have the power now it's my brain too remember <laughs> i like i i can't convey kind of objectively why that is such a bad line mm. but if you think you've already been shown an hour and a half explanation on why a character shares the same brain as another character, mm-hmm. to have your character say out loud, we share the same brain, is uh, is redundant. Redundant is the yes. word I can, I can put it on it. Yeah, same same thing with the line, uh, it's my body, it, it was always my body. It, he can do it, I can do it. That like, Yeah, that it was always my body, so if he can do it, so can I. You could just say, it was always my body, yeah. and let the audience put the two things together. Like, you shouldn't, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't like... Trying to remember, I want to do this even just for me. I just want it to be that. Yeah. I don't like when a character starts any sentence ever in history with, so you're telling me. <laughs> because that means they're going to recap something just in case it feels like the audience missed it. Mm-hmm. So that everyone's on board. So, I will say, like, the monster design mm-hmm. is the with the how, how like, jointy and, and like, Almost angular the movements were. were it, I realize I would have liked to have seen a little more imagination after sitting with it for a little bit mm-hmm. on how they move when that head is in charge. Yeah. Because they did pop the arms out of their sockets and we did see one shot where the character is stabbing someone where they're face down aiming at them and the arm looks like it's the wrong way 
But it stabs forward, like the arm has the ability to stab forward. Yeah. And there's little shots here and there that suggest that the joints are moving backwards so that they can move the way that they're supposed to be able to biologically. Mm -hmm. But there's just some inconsistencies where it's like, he climbs up on a table and for a second it's just like, climbing up a table. Hmm. Like, the idea is maybe you can use both sets of eyes. Yeah. So, like, you can see yourself climb up the table and you can focus on what's behind you and in front of you at the same time. Or, like, you know, you can... Yeah. It just... The idea is so cool. And they give you little flashes of it. So it's there. Yeah. It would be really neat to see if they committed to that budgetarily what they could have done with it. Right. Imagine, like, wherever you are, you're just walking backwards... And try and just imagine what your body looks like from the neck down walking backwards. And imagine if that was walking forwards and what it looked like. Yeah. I want to see that. I think the filmmakers thought that their concept was going to be a twist and a turn that may be a step forward. A step outside of something that's happened in horror movies before. Mm -hmm. And... It wasn't quite original enough for it to be like, look where horrors come up to and here's where horror is now. Mm-hmm. It just, it feels like James Wan was like, he's been he's been busy a lot. Mm-hmm. And so he went back to make a movie that was just kind of like in a pool. Someone with their hands behind their head and a floating thing using their feet to slowly kick their way around the pool that they filled with whatever liquid they're floating around in. He's just enjoying being in the pool that he really enjoys. <laughs> yeah. to talk about i guess dracula okay so we're going to talk about dracula and we're going to open it up with the introduction of this film that rated gauntlet our gauntlet is 10 questions where you have the ability to earn points oh crap curtis is going to be the first one i'm going to be on it next week you only get a point if you are subjective and not objective, this works like the rules from the first side. Anytime you say you like something, you don't like something, something is good or bad, something is your favorite, any quality that is good or bad, if you look at the color blue, you had better say that appears to me to be a shade of blue. Because if you say it's blue and someone else thinks it's a shade of green, you're now subjective. <laughs> the gauntlet of questions... Begins now with Curtis's first viewing of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bram Stoker's Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. So, Curtis, you are not allowed to say anything subjective. We are talking objective facts only. Are you ready? As I are you ready? As I'll ever be. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Is the movie good or bad? It's a complicated question. It's not a complicated question. It's a simple question. There are there are aspects of the movie that I can see people not liking. I would say because uh, like you have like so you have dialogue. I say Keanu Reeves giving a, a less than favorable British accent. Uh, it comes off as almost <laughs> judging Keanu Reeves British accent. That's too <laughs> fuck. It comes off as campy. I'm sorry. But overall, I would say that the movie... You want to just take the point and move on to the next question? Movie's good. What was your favorite scene? Again, I actually got to think about this one real quick, because there are a lot of scenes. Uh, the scene that I probably enjoyed the most 
would be. You know, what? I don't know if I have a favorite scene. Very good. That's an objective detail. All right. So, all right. Just, just plain objectivity. Okay. Uh-huh. What sucked about the movie? <laughs> what sucked about the movie? Um, in you know that scene with the green mist going up to uh, Renfield, going up to to to, to Renfield, Mina and Renfield to uh, Mina and, and Renfield. I, I didn't like how how it looked like composited. Not allowed to give subjective opinions on here, Curtis. <laughs> it, it's not what the point of this question is about. Damn. Oh well, it it, it 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 looked composited and and like detached from what was actually going on the screen. Like it didn't, it didn't uh, seem connected to the actual environment. It didn't seem part of hmm. the actual, uh, I guess, stage. So, of all the work they tried to do to make effects work in camera for the movie, mm-hmm. the green smoke came off as something pasted onto the film rather than something where. Uh, the green reflected off of people's skin or or had any details to it that would have made it feel like it was really in that environment. Yeah. All right. Well, then rank the actors from best to worst. As soon as you give me a name, you... I know. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, this is like... I don't think there's any way to not get a point with this question. I I don't know who to choose, though. Because, like, the actors that stand out the most for me are, are like, Gary Oldman and, and, and Anthony Hopkins. I don't know who to choose. The actors that stood out the most to you are those two is an objective statement. Curtis makes it through this round without a point. Now tell me your favorite quote from the movie. It's, uh, the blood is life. It, it, it's a direct reference to, uh, Nos- to, uh, Nosferatu. That's your favorite? I'm, 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 I'm just saying that it, 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 it kind of, like, gives a, a, a connecting factor to, like, movies that have come before it. So it, it holds... A little bit more weight than I would say other lines do. That's subjective, though. Almost. Almost. If I had not said the last thing, right? Yeah, you could say it holds a lot of weight for me, and that would have been mm. it. But anyways. All right. All right. No, for real. What did you like about the movie? There, there, there are a lot of, like, like aesthetic things going on through the, through the movie that, that really have to do with, like, like, like stage design. So, like, 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 like Dracula's Castle. I'm not, like that was I think a set, but it like it, it had this like lived in look 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 to it. It was old and decrepit. On top of that, you had like these these like paper puppets in the beginning of the movie that give it a, a, like almost a different feel from the rest of the, of, of the movie. And it's like these these clashing things kind of like really stood out to me in, in, in a way that I can't really describe. Okay, all right, I'm gonna let that one go. You talked about how it felt to you. You tried to explain the details that made it feel that way. Just because you can't find an answer doesn't mean you're wrong. So, mm-hmm. eh. did you learn anything from the story they tried to tell? Uh, there's like this, like think this 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 underlying theme or like a story of like infidelity throughout the entire thing, and and how it's a kind of almost a corrupting factor in any kind of relationship. Yeah, there's this whole thing. lust is such a th- lust and and sleep and death. Yeah. And, and like, someone's ability to be corrupt and saved and, like, sort of a, a religious thing. Like, there's a... I don't know. Anyways, that is question seven. Question eight. Did you learn anything about movies or movie making from watching this? All the shots having to do with uh, Dracula's shadow are, like, a tell for him. They're, they're, like, giving kind of almost, like, inner thoughts for Dracula and how it interacts with, uh, the, with, with the, not, 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 not just characters around him, but environments. So for characters, when Keanu Reeves' character is talking about the woman that he's going to marry, you see 
the hands of Dracula's shadow go for Keanu Reeves' neck in anger. So, like, yeah. instantly you can tell Dracula's mad. Yeah. So it may not be the first time people have seen it, but there's still this idea of a creature that is supernatural. Something that's supposed to work a certain natural way about them doesn't work the natural way about them. Yeah. And then that telegraphing something about the character. Yes. Like, you can use this skill to storytell instead of just have, like, one purpose of, like, oh, that's yeah. off. Okay. And what would make you watch this again? I mean, I mean, we're around, like, like Halloween fall time, and, like, this kind of, like, the, the, the tone of this movie gets me into that kind of, like, Halloween attitude and, and, and atmosphere. All right, question 10. The question. The question of all questions. I'm not going to ramp this up. It's not that great. <laughs> um... So, everyone will have to answer this one, and I think this is something that applies to every movie. Would Nicolas Cage have made this movie better? I don't know if Francis Ford Coppola would want a relative of his in one of his movies. That is like the best sarcastic answer that I think you possibly could give. Just want everyone to know that was sarcasm, because he delivered it pretty damn straight. But, (laughs) yeah. Uh, For people who don't know... um, Curtis said, I don't know if, so that is objective. So, Curtis, congratulations. You officially made it through the gauntlet. I need to come up with a new noise for when something goes well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Curtis is the first person to make it through the gauntlet questions, but he's kind of dead. I think he's got a lot of points. Um, The idea here, Nicolas Cage, you know, yes, is is related. His name is Nicolas Coppola, and I think, I don't know if it's like a nephew or something like that, but... Um, you know, that whole family, Jason Schwartzman, the guy from, who's number seven from Scott Pilgrim and mm-hmm. is in like, you know, a lot of Wes Anderson stuff. He's also related to Francis Ford Coppola. Oh my God. Like it, that, that family is kind of all over Hollywood and that's cause Francis Ford Coppola almost infamously lets his family mm. be a heavy part of his productions from the Godfather to like, and the way that plays a role in this movie is, is pretty heavy. Yeah. It's his son. That he let do all of the effects work hmm. for Dracula. So that the the thing that is infamously known for people is that this movie, the only effects that were digitally added to the frames of the movie were like the blue flames. Yeah. And probably the green smoke. Is that- maybe the green smoke, but I don't honestly think for sure the green smoke. And when we say that, I mean, yes, there are some times where they overlaid edited footage together, but for the most part, what you're looking at on screen is layers of different surfaces with images projected onto things in front of the camera so that all of this, the, the picture you're looking at is what that camera captured on that set. Mm-hmm. There are scenes where characters seem to appear like ghosts in the frame and disappear, and that is because they filmed footage of someone doing that, projected it onto the background of what they were filming that day, mm-hmm. so the actors on set could see that ghost appear and disappear, and they could get that in camera. Like, they're so overly... But, but here's the thing, though. I do think that is dating the movie. But, honestly, this is a movie that, like, takes the original book, mm-hmm. adds a lot to it that's, like, personal to Francis Ford Coppola, that's, like, a lot of different things, and... They use a lot of inventive camera tricks and effects in order to make it. And the music, I love the music in this movie. Yeah. Um, But that to me, what you're talking about it being fall and this being a good movie to kind of kick off like Halloween. Like if you're someone who likes Halloween and you're in the mood for it, the idea that this movie starts before time feels real 
You start in a church, and like you said, outdoors, there were only silhouettes of people, and some of those people are made of paper. Because, like they said in the review, uh, Friends of a Couple wanted them all to be paper, but the studio said, no, it has to be like a real battle, and then so on and so forth. Yeah. So basically, you start when the Earth is just darkness with dark people, and then you gradually move forward in time, both with the film, the way the film is shot, and with like the colors, and with the characters populating it, until you're in their modern society Mm -hmm. but then the whole story is like evil birthed at the beginning of like time yeah ramping up to evil dying and passing on sort of a legacy into a world that's going to move on to modern day okay so it feels to me and there's a lot of sleep and death and reawakening and killing and reopening and all that kind of stuff that it's sort of like if the halloween season has a place to go to sleep and reawaken Mm -hmm. this is it waking up it's funny to me that everyone points out the older cast and the younger cast. I think people are so convinced by, by the prosthetics, which are fantastic in this movie. They forget Gary Oldman was a younger actor. <laughs> they forget that he is the young cast as well. <laughs> they, do a, they do a pretty good job on his prosthetics. It's like he looks really old and, and decrepit when it's you just... first see him like in, in like the 1800s. I know, but I mean, if you think like, like I know he's probably older than like Eight, like 21 like no, i'm like, thinking like, like 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 early 30s for gary oldman Prob- possibly not even possibly not yet. yeah keanu reeves and gary oldman are only six years apart as opposed to um anthony hopkins who is 20 years older than gary oldman, gary oldman. and yet people literally criticize this movie as the older actors versus the younger actors because of how good Gary Oldman does performing what he does. Yeah. It's 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 kind of hilarious. So um but then of course and like the stick out is Keanu Reeves and they say they put him in there because he was a popular actor. I don't know if that's 100% true because there is a Hollywood cycle of friends that includes a few like particularly known stars. And I have a feeling that maybe part of it is the couple of family combined with uh Winona Ryder knowing him, Mm -hmm. that it's like, that's how and why he's considered for it. And I think people kind of, uh, they're like, why was Keanu Reeves in this? And they forget he put Sofia Coppola in Godfather Part Mm 3. I don't think it was about, oh, he was a bad actor, so I'm going to put him in because it's going to make money. I think it was just about, I want to make this movie, and I want this person to be in it. Yeah, Maybe he's not the best actor for it, but whatever. Although it is freaking hilarious. His accent is insane. It's... The Boston Sleeps. Like, it is so... Here's the thing. The last thing I want to say. Anthony Hopkins Van Helsing plays it so believably as someone who has to do a morbid job. When you talk about the gallows humor that doctors and social workers and police officers have, mm-hmm. he's rampantly running up and down the thing t- with, like, the most dark humor he's that not- he can possibly throw in. So, We're trying to live in high society, you vagabond! And he's like, I- I'm going to cut off people's heads and genitalia. Like he's, He sounds like a madman. He does, and, and, and he knows it. The character knows it, yes. and he's playing it like a character who knows it. And so that that's kind of, he's like my favorite thing about it. And even he succumbs to, like, temptation. But there's this undercurrent of... Of when you, when you're given over to temptations that are sinful, that you're, you're damned, and and the idea of a soul that hangs in the balance between someone who is still to be saved and who isn't, and all this kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. 
it's such a bizarre thing where, where it kind of feels like it's it's there's more depth to the visuals than maybe there is because that's what I'm saying. The 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 work behind the visuals feels so purposeful. Yeah. That you're looking for the themes and you're looking for the artistry in just the picture on the screen. But honestly, they're also just kind of trying to tell the story of Dracula. And it's it's a big production with a bunch of people and it's not like it feels visionary, but there is no auteur. You know, it is Francis Ford Coppola, but he's also saying this belongs to Bram Stoker. The title, full title of the movie is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's like a hand in two different pots. Like I I don't know. It, it, it's, you could say he doesn't want to take full credit or for what's in two being... different graves. Oh, the Sorry. Eric. Anyways, you could say he doesn't want to take full credit for what's being shown. I guess I don't know. Like maybe, maybe, but it just I there's I don't see a lot of movies like it. When it came out, it was super successful and spawned a couple of other movies to be made. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein by um, Kenneth Branagh. Okay. And, um, but you know, it's popular for a lot of reasons. I would go back to it. So thank you for listening to this film, Not Rated. I hope that the gauntlet doesn't put you off. It felt so nice not having to care as much about things. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the point is we never think about how freeing it is to be able to like talk about movies or whatever and everyone's mm. like you're wrong and you're right and I'm right and I hate everybody like I don't know it just that felt really satisfying to me for a long time to just be like let's like suppress talking about our opinions and then not and so I think I'm happy with the concept of like watching you under the hot seat and mm. then I'm going to be under the hot seat next week mm-hmm. where it's like you have to remember how difficult it is for there to really be an inherent truth to something and then realize that you're free to think and feel what you want to think and feel because the truth isn't just one truth that encompasses everybody. So, yeah. um, I promise I'm not high. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Uh, again, uh, we're hopefully going to be back next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is season two and we are going to be continuing things along this line. So, uh, we hope to listen to you. We, I hope to listen to you. I made that mistake yesterday at the theater. So, and remember, if you like anything about this, we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, so head on over to musiccitydrivein.com, look under podcasts, and you can find other people. And I'm Eric. And I'm Curtis. You can find me at High Contrast FLM. Find me at uh, 90sGamer407 and on Twitch at Merrick Merrick underscore Tainment. And all of y'all, get ready for spooky season? I don't know.